Okay, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're going to start up. And um, there's a bunch of things that I want to discuss today. One of them uh, is sort of inspired by a conversation that I had with someone uh, recently uh, on an airplane. And um, we're going to sort of tie it into a bunch of different things. But, but just as a point of departure, because I've heard this from actually a, a number of different people, um, which is, uh, we were kind of just talking about, you know, spirituality, religion, Judaism, all the rest. And um, one of the issues this person had was just the, the idea that um, it was a stumbling block uh, for him that just the, the whole organized religion, in heavy quotations, just the fact that, you know, this is an organized religion. And a lot of people, like I say, I've, I've heard that from a bunch of people, that turn of phrase, that it's sort of like, I'm not into organized religion. That's usually how the sentence goes. And, um, and you know, so, and, and I definitely am sympathetic, and I definitely hear the issue. Because, you know, when I think of organized religion, I think of a big um, temple or synagogue building with, a, with an overhead and with a, a very large copying machine <laughs> and, uh, you know, a staff. And it's sort of like, and there's dues, and there's membership, and there's, you know, you know, on the upside, there's padded seats and good air conditioning. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's sort of like, have you noticed I haven't mentioned the word God yet? <laughs> it's like a whole, it's a whole long list of things, and God is in there somewhere, you know. But it's, it's definitely after the building, you know, and, um, and the mailing list, you know. So, so there's, there's an issue. There's definitely an issue. And like I say, I'm very sympathetic to this notion of organized religion. So, so, so we were discussing it some more, but I, I think that one of the things that I think is important for, for all of us to understand is that, is that uh, Torah, anyway, is... Well, I'll say it in a, in a humorous way, but then I'll make my point. There's nothing organized about Judaism, <laughs> And um, what I mean by that is, is that is that it all is about your direct relationship with Hashem. It's, and, and in fact, if you want to get a little bit fancy about it and use sort of like a bigger word here, it's really, there's really an existential component where basically all that really exists is you and God. And that's not to um, foster a sense of selfishness or solipsism or... Um, Anything else, I mean, that doesn't, or entitlement, that doesn't entitle you to anything, because, because that means that everyone else is, 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 who's not you, is all the more so a further extension of the revelation of godliness. So, in other words, it's, to say that basically it's you and God, well then everyone else who's in existence falls under the category of, of God then. Do you understand? They're not God. They're not God. But they're an emanation of God. You know, I, I put it one time many, many years ago. If, uh, in terms of the, the, the movie The Truman Show, um, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but the, the premise of it is actually absolutely beyond deep. And, and, and what it was was, it's, uh, and I recommend seeing it. It's really a, a, an amazing movie. It stars Jim Carrey, and the idea is that he lives in this community. It's like this whole island, basically. And, what, and he's born into this. 
as a baby. And what he doesn't realize is, is that the entire island, the entire world that he exists in, is a television production. And everything that he encounters has been scripted to see how he's going to react. And it's the most popular television show in the entire world. All over the world, everyone watches it. And he's the only one who's not in on this production. Right? Because he's grown up in it. And they even have this, the rising and the setting of the sun and an ocean. And it's just like, it's beyond, 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 beyond. Right? But everything is scripted around him. And believe it or not, this is more or less our lives. Meaning to say, meaning to say that we go through life and God scripts all of these situations for us to be in, to see how we're going to react, in order to bring out the best in us, to test us, so that we can take our inner potential and to manifest it and to realize it in real ways, creates these situations for us, so that everyone who you're interacting with, so to speak, is, is God, so to speak. They're not God. They're not God. But they're being used by God, right? But here's where it goes like uh, exponential, okay? You ready? Because the thing is, is that while that's true for you, it's true for everyone simultaneously. In other words, whereas, whereas the whole world is just being scripted for you individually, right? The whole world is also being scripted for me individually. Which means that everyone else, including you, is just part of God's script. So everyone simultaneously is serving this role that the whole thing, the whole world, the whole universe is just being scripted for them. But also then you flip positions with everyone else and then you're just part of that script for someone else. So it's really, it's quite amazing. And it goes to the arrangement of every leaf on every tree. It's, it's, that, it's that detailed. So, so the idea that Judaism is an organized religion really doesn't cut to the depths of what our experience is in this world. There really is this primary relationship between you and God and the entire world is an interface and everyone else in the world is an interface between you and God. So that, so that put another way, all of life is an ongoing conversation with God. All of your words, all of your actions, all of the people that you meet, all of this is an ongoing conversation between you and God. Okay. So now I want to further develop this idea. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, just to, just to make sure that we're communicating here, what I'm trying to say is, that, that one shouldn't get hung up with, quote-unquote, the organized aspect of the religion, with the building, so to speak, the big temple building of the, of the religion. Because on the most primary level, it, it's you and God, and, and that's what it is. So it's very freeing, actually. This is, this is very freeing to have that, that information, you know? I mean, you know, as much as as much as we're mourning the loss of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and we are, and that we need that, and I'm not saying anything, God forbid, a billion times to diminish the importance of having it back, but even when we lost it and it was destroyed and it's been destroyed twice, we're still here and the world is still here and the Torah is still here and God is still here, Jewish people are still here. 
So it just shows you that, you know, it just shows you that the, the, the primariness of the individual in God. Okay. So, so that should be actually a very positive, happy thought. Now, again, it's very important to be a member of a community because we have sort of a, a, a twin aspect to our soul, which is that we're not just us. We're also members of the Jewish community and we're also members of the, the, the human race. And so there is, this, um, there is this collective soul aspect to each and every one of us. But on a very primary level, there's also our individual identity. And that's, that's, that's the perspective often that we see the world from. So, so again, we just have to incorporate all of these ideas. You know? I heard a rabbi say one time that um, you can't hear just a speaker one time. Because basically everyone tries to emphasize a single point in their, in their talks. But if you only hear that speaker one time, sometimes you think it's just this and it's nothing else. And you don't realize they're just emphasizing X and they're assuming Y and Z, right? So I always try to say emphasize Y, but also throw in X and Z. I think that was right. <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> Another way of saying it is that, you know, when you hear a point in Torah or in life, you have to, you have to do a 360 around the point. You have to contextualize every single Torah point. And that's very, very important. You have to know, okay, that's, that's a very good idea, but when doesn't it apply? When, when does the actual opposite apply? You see, because all of that is Torah and all of that is, is growth. You have to understand the fullness of every single idea. You know, because I think that a, a big rookie mistake that people make, unfortunately, throughout, throughout their lives is they, they hear one thing, but they don't understand the fullness of the thought. And sometimes, oddly enough, the fullness of the thought can be the opposite of the thought in certain circumstances. I'll give you a classic example. We have to tell the truth. We absolutely have to tell the truth. Having said that, in certain instances, it's the Torah approach not to tell the truth in a certain situation. You know, like, for instance, if it's going to horribly insult someone, if your aging grandmother who barely can walk makes you chicken soup and asks you how it is, and the chicken soup tastes terrible... The Torah thing to say is, it's delicious. <laughs> you don't say, you know, grandmother, I, I just started attending classes and I really, I'm trying to be very holy. And the truth is, is that I appreciate your effort, but this is terrible. You've made a terrible soup. You know, I mean, if you think that that's Torah, then you're insane. And you say, but you say you have to tell the truth. Now you're contradicting yourself. No, you don't understand you don't understand the depths of the Torah. So we say Torah Chaim. It's a Torah of life. That doesn't mean, again, to do a 360 around that point. That doesn't mean that willy-nilly I can decide to tell a lie in whatever situations that I'm in in order to make someone feel good. You have to understand what the context is in every single situation. Okay. So again, but this is... This is, this is how um, one has to learn Torah. One has to understand the fullness of every single idea, to do a 360 around every single point. Very important. Okay. So now, now that we've emphasized the fact that 
Torah really is not a organized religion at all. And if you think of if you think of uh, Abraham Avinu, right? You you know I'll tell you something. Just I was thinking about it recently. Um, you know, my I was privileged to have um, Reb Shlomo Karlbach as my Rebbe, um, and who really introduced me to Torah and everything. And uh, his daughter, Neshama, was speaking at the Happy Minion, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago or something like this. It was a while ago. And, um, and she said, just during her talk, I was just remembering her recently, she said, you know, a lot of people compare Reb Shlomo to different people, to the, to the Baal Shem Tov, for instance, and things like this. And she said, for me, the closest comparison is really Avraham Avinu. You know, because when Avraham Avinu went out, like, people just... They, they had forgotten who God is. They had forgotten who God is. And he was sort of like reminding them, you know? So, and, and it was sort of him against the world in a way. So, so there is this individual aspect of it. And it really does start with Abraham. And when Abraham started, there was nothing really organized about it at all. It was the individual and the world. And, and we are sort of in that spot again. Because, now I was sharing it with the Hebrew yesterday a little bit. You know, a lot of people um, really feel misunderstood. And, and, and rightly so. Rightly so. A lot of people are misunderstood. But I promise you, no one's more misunderstood than God. No one is more misunderstood than God. You know, here God is sustaining the entire universe. Sustaining the entire universe. Moment to moment. I mean, there are microbes like thousands of feet below sea level in the Indian Ocean that are being sustained by God as we speak. There are vast tracts of land that not only will you never visit in your life, you will never even conceive that they exist, but they're there right now with wildlife that are being sustained right now by God. Not, not just that you don't know about it, you'll never know about it. I mean, the extent of God's kindness and greatness, it's not just that you don't know about it. You'll never conceive of it. It's so great. And God is doing so much good, constantly. But because of the nature of our humanity, and and again, this is understandable, this is not a criticism of us, but because of the nature of our, the immediacy of our problems and our issues and everything like that, we don't see the, the... the extreme goodness of God. We don't see it. So who's more misunderstood than God? Who's more misunderstood than God? Can you imagine? Can you imagine you say to your child, please don't light the carpet on fire. <laughs> I promise you this is a good thing. And your child who's just discovered the wonders of matches <laughs> thinks, what are you doing to me? You're killing me. <laughs> Here I'm expressing myself creatively. You know, your two-year-old finds his greatest love in the world playing with sharp knives. <laughs> and you say, please, no, i got to take that away from you. And, and the child's like screaming bloody murder. What are you doing to me? You're cutting my wings off. <laughs> You're destroying me. <laughs> I mean, this is us and God. We're, we, we, we are children. We are children. And God is the parent. And God is, God is directing us. And, and we don't get what we want or whatever it is. And we're, God, what are you doing? You're killing me! So, 
Okay. So now there are there are there are very important implications for what it means, what I'm talking about in terms of this idea that, that, that Judaism is not an organized religion, that it's that it's that it's you individually and God. And that's I, I think by the way, and again, that's not to exclude the importance of the community and all the rest, but we've already acknowledged that. But on a most primary level, it's you and God. And that's what exists. And so, there are very important implications that flow from that, in terms of how we live our lives and how we express ourselves. And now I want to tie it into where we are in the year, in terms of Elul, in terms of Rosh Hashanah, and in terms of it's really more of a global thing, but let's just sort of situate us ourselves in the here and now right now. Okay? So basically, just to get the wide-angled scope right now, there are three 40-day periods in the year. Okay? <clears throat> and we're in the middle right now of the third 40-day period. Alright? So let me just walk you through this very quickly. The first 40-day period is when we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's the holiday of Shavuos. Okay? We receive the Torah... And then 40 days later, the tablets, the luchos, get smashed because the golden calf is worshipped. Okay? Of course, that's a whole subject in itself. We'll return to it, so, because it ties in very much with what I want to talk about. So that's the end of the first 40-day period. The next 40-day period, Moshe prays that the Jewish people should be forgiven. And that's also on Mount Sinai. Okay? Moshe goes up to Mount Sinai. 40 days he davens, please God, forgive us. God says, okay, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. Okay? And he says to Moshe, go up to the top of uh, Mount Sinai again with the tablets. This time Moshe is carving the tablets, okay? This time Moshe is doing it. And Moshe goes to the top of Mount Sinai. That's the beginning of the third 40-day period. And that's Rosh Chodesh Elul. That's the first of the month of Elul. And that begins the third of the 40-day periods. 40 days after Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first of the month of Elul, is Yom Kippur. And that's really, so to speak, the first Yom Kippur. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down with the tablets intact this time, right? That's the end of the third 40-day period, and, and the tablets are there, that's Yom Kippur, and the sin of the golden calf is forgiven. Okay. So here we see there's a huge connection between three things. Between the Torah, between the sin of the golden calf, and between the tablets. Right? The forgiveness of the golden calf, the tablets, and Yom Kippur. You've got, yeah? The second set of 40 days ter- is terminated with Yom Kippur. Is, 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 ends with Rosh Chodesh Elul. So just oh. to review, just to review, the first 40-day period starts on Shavuos, ends on the 17th of Tammuz. Mm-hmm. The second 40-day period starts then and ends on the first day of Elul. The third 40-day period starts on the first day of the month of Elul and ends on Yom Kippur. Okay, and that middle period, uh, Moshe is praying that God should forgive the Jews, and then God says, yeah, come up to the top of Mount Sinai again, I'm going to give you the tablets again. Okay? And that's, this whole period is called an Ace Ratzon, which means a time of favor, because this is sort of like the, 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 the forgiveness period is going on right now. 
the, the, the king is in the fields, they say, uh, according to Hasidus, which means God makes himself very close. Normally speaking, if you want to see the king, you have to go to the palace. So the awesomeness of the nature of this period of time is the king is actually in the fields. The king is actually coming out to greet us. Here in Los Angeles, there was a very special moment this past week um, where the president of the United States came and the whole, it was very unusual because the entire city shut down or a large part of the city shut down for hours. It was a very extreme traffic situation where people couldn't, were stuck outside their homes for hours and hours and they, they, they couldn't even, or if they wanted to cross the street, they had to travel like seven miles in the opposite direction to get around the, blo- the, blo- the blockades. And it was very, it was national news what happened. But I, I said to my wife, I wasn't involved in this, but she was. And I, I, I said to her, listen, you know, we understand that whatever exists below exists above. And I said, here you have the, the leader of the free world making himself apparent below. <laughs> I said, the king is in the fields. You know, you have it right here. You know? So... So, um, so that was a nice, uh, it was a nice demonstration, you know, in a nuts and bolts level, at least here in this area uh, of, of this idea. Okay. So let's keep on going. So, so again, we're talking about the importance of this individual connection between us and God. We're also talking about the idea that we're in the middle of this third 40-day period, which culminates on Yom Kippur, with receiving the intact tablets and the forgiveness of, of and the forgiveness of the sin of the golden calf. Okay, so how are all these things tying together? Alright. So so let's take a moment to um, go over the differences between the first tablets and the second tablets. By the way, the the way you say the, the tablets in Hebrew is luchos, so if I use that word uh, without translating it, you, you know I'm referring to the tablets. Okay. So the, the first luchos were um, divine. They were made of a heavenly substance. And there were all sorts of miracles that are associated with them. Okay? I'll just tick off a few of them. Um, but they're, 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 it was quite, quite amazing. They were, they were stone, like a, a sapphire-like substance. And yet, you could roll, up, roll them up like a, like, a, like a scroll. Okay, so hard and yet soft. That's kind of interesting. That was one of the miracles surrounding them. At a certain point, when it says that Moshe Rabbeinu went to go down, this was when he was going down to smash the luchos, it says he grabbed the luchos. And the Chachamim say, wait a second. The sages say, wait a second. What do you mean he grabbed the luchos? And they said that the luchos were floating in the air. So they floated. Again, they were, they were this miraculous, divine kind of thing, you know? So he actually grabbed them from the air where they were floating and then came down and smashed them, okay? So that's another miraculous aspect about them. Another thing was, each letter was carved through and through, from front to back. So now, if you can picture this, if it's written this way, and it's carved through and through, if you, were turn, if you were to turn it around and read it from the opposite direction, it should read backwards. And yet it read forward. In other words, it read the same way backward on, the, on one side of the luchos as, as the other side of the luchos, and yet each letter was inscribed through the tablets. 
So again, that was another miracle. Another miracle of it is that certain letters floated. Now, what I mean by that is there are two letters in the Hebrew alphabet which are basically circle shapes. So again, if you imagine something carved through and through, if you have like the letter Samach, okay, Samach is a circle, you've got a little donut hole in the middle there, right? Now, if, if it's carved through and through, what happens to that donut hole? It falls down. It floated. Okay, and that was the same thing with the, the interior of the, of the final mem, the mem sophie. Also it floated. That was another aspect of the miraculous nature of it. But, even given all those miracles, maybe the greatest miracle of all, and this is just me talking about it, okay? Maybe the greatest miracle of all is that the entire Torah was written on these tablets. Now, by, what I mean by that is not just what we call the Torah Shebek Tzav, the written law, but the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, loosely translated as the Talmud. So the Chumash, the five books, as well as the complete, lengthy explanation of the five books were all written on the first tablets. All right, and we're going to see how the second tablets were very, very different, almost the opposite of what I just said, even though the content was the same. We'll go through the differences in a moment. But let me just take a moment to explain something. Because a lot of people, a lot of people get very tripped up when they start learning Torah, and, and they, don't, they don't understand what's the difference between the written law and the oral law, and, and a lot of people are extremely dismissive of, quote-unquote, oh, the rabbis said that, or what the rabbis added, and it's really based on a very fundamental misunderstanding of what the Torah tradition is. So let me just take a moment to explain what's going on there, okay? You see, someone very great, and I, I, I don't know who it is at this moment, so I apologize, but a very great rabbi explained it like this. Imagine there's a, a, a lecture, you're in college, and the professor is speaking, right? And he's giving the lecture on the subject, okay? And you're taking notes on the, on the class, right? And you're, you're, you know, your notes are not a transcription by any means of what the professor is saying. Agree? Right? It's just the highlights. So, so that you can try to remember what the, what the, what the, what the professor is saying. Okay. That is... And yet, you know that there's a fuller talk that exists. Even though you have the notes, you know the notes are not the talk. The notes are a, a digest of the fuller talk. Okay. That is the parallel between the Chumash, the five books, and the Talmud. That is the parallel between the written law and the oral law. The written law, the five books, are the notes. They're the salient, highlighted points of the fuller explanation of what the Torah is. Okay? So, 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 where a lot of people go wrong is, they think the notes are the lecture. They think the notes are the transcript. Do you understand how people make a very big mistake? So they look at the five books and they go, well, wait a second, oh, the rabbis are adding that. No, the rabbis are not adding that. The rabbis are telling you what the professor said, what the professor's explanation of the notes are. Right? Do, do, do you hear the difference? 
Because people will get a, a fundamentally corrupted understanding of what the Torah tradition is, unless they understand this point. Yeah? I just want to read something to light. According to this flat, the fifth miracle that you listed, that the entire Torah, including the Talmud, was written on the... Well, not, not, let me clarify. Not the Talmud as it exists today. In other words, the Talmud as it exists today is fleshed out with, with contemporary stories at the time of the sages and things like that. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, um, that the oral law... You see, so, so let's make it a little clearer. When Moshe got... Here's, here's how we, here's the Torah tradition of how Moshe received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Moshe's on the mountain, and he's basically in Shemayim, in heaven. And God tells him, God is dictating word by word, letter by letter... What, what to write down. And then God explains to him what those words mean. So you have simultaneously the giving of the written law and the oral law happened at the same time, both things at Mount Sinai. Okay? So the classic example, the classic example is that um, God says that on Sukkot you take the fruit of the beautiful tree. So Moshe writes that down. So Moshe writes down the fruit of the beautiful tree, and then God says to him, that's the esrog. Don't write that down, but that's the esrog. So there's a classic example where you've got a passage that's written, which would be seemingly cryptic, because your idea of a beautiful tree and my idea of a beautiful tree are different things. And yet you see from the beginning of time, or the beginning of the Jewish people, the beginning of the giving of the Torah, there's only been one fruit that we've used on Sukkot, for, for the four species, and that's the estrogen. Why? Because, because we didn't, it, and, and you have so many different opinions in the Torah. I say that it should be a lemon. I say that it should be an apple. And then, oh no, I go by Rabbi Ishmael, who says that it should be a, a grape. Right? You, you don't have that in the, in, in the Jewish religion. You have, you have a, a, a total consensus. Because from the beginning of time, we had Moshe himself explaining to the Jewish people the fruit of the beautiful tree, that's the estrog. Okay, so here you have the interface between the written law and the oral law. Yeah? Okay, okay, so very good. So why, why do it like that? In other words, why not just put all of the information right at... Well, that's what happened. That is what happened. On the first tablets, all of the explanations were on the tablets themselves. That's what we're saying. And that didn't happen on the second tablets. The oral law and the written law all of a sudden became in separate parts. That is, that's the point that we're getting to. That's the point that we're getting to. So, now, how does that tie back into the idea of fixing the sin of the golden calf in Yom Kippur and Judaism being between you and God and all the rest? Okay, now we can continue back on track. Okay? So, so now, the idea is like this. You see, what was the sin of the golden calf? So this is a very lengthy conversation, but I'm just going to zero in on one point right now. And basically it's like this. We felt like we needed an intermediary between us and God. Okay? And we didn't understand the primacy of our direct connection, each of us, with our direct connection with God. 
And so while we didn't believe, the Jewish people did not believe that the golden calf was actually a god, we didn't believe that. But we did believe that Moshe was dead at this point because he hadn't come back down from Mount Sinai and we thought he wasn't going to come back. And God tested us in this notion by showing us his coffin. Okay, it's a whole lengthy kind of topic, but I'm just kind of giving you the, the, the bullet points right now. And what was being tested out of us right then and there was, do you understand that you have a direct connection with God or, or not? Okay? So, so the second tablets, as we're saying, the second tablets just had the written law on it, but not the oral law, not the explanation. Which means that we had to d- invest the direct effort in order to derive the meaning of what, it, of what it was. And I'm going to explain myself a little bit further. And I'll give you an example. And it, it's, it's what I think is a very fascinating chapter in, in American uh, history from uh, approximately the 1950s in terms of, um, in terms of uh, I guess it would be sociology. And this is... Um, how canned foods and boxed baking goods, right, like Betty Crocker type of stuff and all the rest, entered into the American kitchen, which, was, um, which, was, which, which wasn't so simple and wasn't so straightforward when it happened. Because the American mother did not trust these items. This was in a can, and I'm going to serve this canned thing to my family, like... That, there's something wrong with that. There was a great mistrust. Or, here's a powdered box of something, and I'm going to, that's the cake that I'm making. You know, I mean, for anyone to make a cake for someone, that's an act of love. I'm going to just pour this powder into a bowl, and that's, there was something to be suspicious about. You know what I mean? And so they didn't embrace it, and it wasn't successful in the beginning. So someone very wise, figured out, you know something? Take the powdered cake mix, pour it in a bowl, and ask them to crack an egg and put it in. Once they crack an egg and put it in, they will feel like they've made the cake. (laughs) And that now it's homemade. Now, I think everyone knows that there's such a thing as powdered eggs. (laughs) You didn't need to crack it. You don't need to crack an egg. They can easily make it with a powdered egg so that you just pour a little water in. But now that I've cracked the egg and I've invested the effort into it, now all of a sudden it's homemade. Very fascinating. And it worked. It worked on a giant billions, probably trillions of dollars level it worked. You know? That was not a small idea. Alright? Now, the same thing happened with um, canned foods also. They gave you recipes, add a little salt and a little paprika and this and that, and then all of a sudden, all right, now, now you're making it, all right? Similar thing, okay? In fact, did you ever wonder why there's always on those canned things recipes? You think they put the recipes on there for, for, their own, for your health? Oh, so this is just the beginning, you understand? And then you go, eh, let them season it themselves. <laughs> but psychologically, they've made the breakthrough to you, you know? Okay, so, so, um, so anyway. And by the way, it was also guilt, because mothers felt guilty. They felt like they weren't doing the required work. 
that, that was another aspect of this. I read a whole article on it. I think there's a whole book written on it. But anyway, that, that's what I know on the subject. So, so now, the second tablets, the second tablets involved a level of work that the first tablets did not involve. Of direct investment of yourself. Now the Chachamim, in the Mishnah, for instance, the Mishnah is supposed to be a clear explanation of what the passage in the five books really means. For instance, the fruit of the beautiful tree, in the Mishnah it will say, that's the Esrik. But listen to this. The quote-unquote clear explanation of the passage in the, in, the, in the written law is written in an incredibly terse way. That means very kind of slightly difficult to understand way where you have to crack an egg in order to understand the explanation. In other words, you have to invest of yourself in order to understand the explanation. And now all of a sudden everything becomes much more meaningful and much more clear because you're investing of yourself. And now we're going to start to answer a bunch of questions that have been up in the air. You see, once you invest of yourself in the relationship with God, what do you realize? You break through this concept or this false construct of needing an intermediary. Do you understand? When you have to invest of yourself in your relationship with God, when you have to crack the egg, so to speak, and you have to put in direct effort in terms of forging this connection between you and God, you break through this concept of the intermediary. That is the fixing of the sin of the golden calf. That is Yom Kippur. In other words, Yom Kippur, which again, just to review, Yom Kippur is the day where the, the first Yom Kippur is the day when the sin of the golden calf was forgiven. And it was the day when the second tablets, which required our effort, was given. You see? So they all tie together. Because forgiveness comes, you see, forgiveness comes when you've got that direct connection with God and you're investing yourself in that effort. Why does forgiveness come then? You see, there's a very famous problem. person is in shul, the happy minion, you're on Yom Kippur, and if you haven't davened Yom Kippur at the happy minion, I highly recommend it. It's probably the, the, the most special davening of the entire year there. We go all day. There's no break. It's really awesome. It's, it's awesome. And, uh, and then, but, you know, wherever you are, you know, you're davening and you're davening your heart out, and at the end of the day, you're, 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 your sins are forgiven. You know, you're, you're, you're a pure soul again, and you're wiped clean, and all the rest. By the way, you should know that that's between you and God. If you have an issue with someone else, like I stole from that guy, after Yom Kippur, you still stole from that guy. You know, the person-to-person things, you've got to make it right with the, with the people. Yom Kippur doesn't wipe that stuff clean. You've got to know. You gotta, you're not off the hook on that stuff. You've got you to straighten that out. It's very important. All right. But nonetheless, hopefully you've done that and you're a clean slate. All right. Now comes the first prayer after Yom Kippur. 
you know, which is always like amazing. Like you get through the entire day of davening, and then there's the Marev service. You know what I mean? It's like I can't believe I got a. There's another service to daven. I got to daven Marev. Oh my goodness, you know. So you start davening the, the evening service Marev, and in Marev is Shmona Esrei, is the is the standing of the prayer, the Amida, and part of that is Slach Lanu. God, please forgive us. And you clap your chest and you say Slach Lanu, and it's like, what did I do? What? It's, been, it's been 30 seconds since Yom Kippur's been over and I'm already clapping my chest saying, please God forgive me. What did I do? So there are famous answers to that question. But I think the most, to me, one of the deepest, most amazing answers, and I wish I could tell you who said this, is that you know what you're atoning for? For the fact that you don't feel forgiven. Isn't that awesome? Because a lot of people go through the entire process and they've got this Teflon thing on, on them and God is forgiving them and, and that feeling that they've really been forgiven just bounces off them. It just bounces off them. And this is a lot of people or maybe most people. I don't know. It's at least a lot of people. At the very least, it's a lot of people. And it's maybe most people. What's the problem? The problem is that a lot of people are davening to the sitter. They're not davening to God. <laughs> or they're davening to the walls of the shul. But they're not davening to God. And how do you daven to God? You've got to cut out all the middlemen. You've got to cut out all the middlemen. You've got to have that direct connection. That's how we started this talk. You've got to have that direct connection. And that requires putting in that effort. Cracking that egg. That's what it is when you... When you so, so let me put it another way, okay? So there's a very famous Torah from the Kutzka Rebbe that says that it's possible to turn mitzvahs into idol worship. Sounds like a very radical concept. I mean, I'm trying to get away from idol worship by doing mitzvahs. How am I doing... Idol worship by doing mitzvahs. I mean, how is that possible? So here's a pushka. This is a charity box, right? Sadaka box, right? So imagine I take a coin and I put it in the box and I say, I've done the mitzvah of tzedakah. Yeah, but who did I do the mitzvah of tzedakah for? If I'm just focused on the charity box, I basically just worship the charity box. I just served the charity box by putting the... In other words, if, that's the, if that is the extent of my, of my, of my, of the expansiveness of my act and what I have in mind, that it, that it ended with this visual of the box, then what, what have I done? So in other words, a person has to understand that every single act, every single conversation... Every single everything, certainly every single mitzvah, that is the conduit to which I connect with Hashem. It's like they always talk about, you know, in terms of a baseball swing or a golf swing. That follow-through, that follow-through in terms of consciousness is the entire essence of your relationship with God. It doesn't end with the act itself. There's that 
follow through where you say, I've done this act, God, for you. I'm connecting with you. Please, God, accept this. Please, God, may this be pleasing to you. Or, God, I love you so much. Or whatever it is, every act requires that moment afterwards, which is the follow-through. And believe me, that's not a small thing. That's the essence to your having a personal connection with God. That's the essence of it. When you have that, then you need one more step in order to feel forgiven. And that is, you have to be able to take yes for an answer. A lot of people, you know, it's like sealing the deal in certain instances, you know, like in salesmanship, sometimes people talk themselves out of a deal. What does that mean? You're talking and you say, say you're trying to sell a house to someone, you're in real estate, person goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you know, it seems like a pretty good, yeah, you know, and I am looking, oh, and the schools are, oh, oh and, you know, and, uh, and all that, and, oh, is that really a, an elm? Really? I love elms. Yeah. You know, so, you, everything's going right. Everything's going right, you know, and the person goes, you know something? Yeah, let's do it. And you go, fantastic, and you know something? We're also going to build a new superhighway next door. And the guy goes, what? So it's going to be, oh yeah, it's going to be a massive thing and transportation's going to be even easier? The guy goes, well, you mean there's going to be construction across the street for the next five years? <laughs> you just talked yourself out of the deal. The person says, I want to sign the contract. You stop talking at that point. You understand? You stop talking. The person has to know when to stop talking. Right? A person also has to know when to take yes for an answer. Right? If God is telling you, I'm going to forgive you, I am forgiving you, then you have to go, who am I? You want to give me some cash? Give me the cash. And you say, well, I don't deserve it. Well, who decides whether you deserve it or not? You? Okay, so maybe you have poor self-esteem. Okay, that's another issue. We can work on that too. But, but, but God wants to forgive you? And you're, and you're giving God a hard time? <laughs> so, again, if you make yourself into a vessel, by putting in that effort and carving in that direct connection, you know, you see, look, if someone loves you very much, and you understand that someone loves you very much, and they want to do something nice for you, you can do it. Someone, imagine just someone loves you very much and they say, you know something? Can I, can I take you to the park right now? You know, and I bought some sandwiches. Maybe we'll sit on the grass, we'll eat some sandwiches. Do you have some time? Yeah, I have a little time. Can I take you? I already have them. They're in the car. Can I take you right now? Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, I would like to do that. If someone loves you very much, you, you, you have the wherewithal to accept their, their act of kindness. And so, so that's so much of the work of this period, and that's so much of the work of our lives, in order to make ourselves vessels to be able to receive God's love. Because God does love us, and God is giving us to us every single moment 
Because if he wasn't, we wouldn't be here. And we wouldn't, the world itself would not be here. All right, stop there.